0: If you'll remain standing for the reading of God's word, we're going to read Isaiah 6, 1 through 7, and then the first verse of Isaiah 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs with, from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. You'll turn a few pages back to Isaiah 1.1. 1, 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. You may be seated.
1: Well, beloved, I'm excited for the book of Isaiah. It's actually my favorite book in the Bible, in the entire Bible, not just the Old Testament. So it's done a work on my life personally. I think we'll hear about that more a little bit later. But um, all to say, I'm looking forward to the next several months and perhaps years in the book of Isaiah. You're thinking, oh, no, that long. No, let's, let's pray together. Our gracious God, we do ask uh, for your great help this morning. I ask that my words would be true and helpful and biblical. I ask that uh, your people might receive larger and fuller and clearer sights of Jesus this morning. And our ultimate request, God, is that uh, your glory would be our ultimate aim in life. Certainly on the Lord's Day and certainly from the proclamation of your word, but God, all throughout our lives, Sunday to Sunday, um, that the glory of God would be our ultimate ambition and our single passion in life. Um, And so in these short moments, Lord, help us, we pray, to give us Uh, to give us that, fresh visions of Christ and to enjoy him and to be found in him, as Paul said. What a joy it is to be found in Christ. Not any longer to be found in Adam, but to be found in Christ. What a joy. So help us, God. We thank you for meeting with us this morning. Would you come and preach your word in Christ's name? Amen. A couple of uh, introductory comments as we begin Isaiah. I have to admit that I'm a little bit, uh, I approach Isaiah with a little bit of fear and trepidation. I do every book, but especially Isaiah. Uh, it's 66 chapters, so it's a big book. It's quite daunting to read personally. It's quite daunting to uh, preach through as you look through this book. Uh, I joked earlier about being in this book for several years, and maybe we will. I'm not sure. Uh, There are 1,292 verses in Isaiah, so we are in for the long haul. Uh, Maybe in your personal reading of Isaiah, you've been confused about this book. I certainly am. Uh, Many commentators, good commentators are as well, so you're in good company if you're confused about Isaiah. From a literary standpoint, we're dealing with prophecy, poetry, narrative, oracles, and so on and so forth. So that makes the challenge for interpreting, um, is Isaiah describing something in his own day? Is he looking back on the past? Is he looking forward to the future, something that's going to come? What, what's Have you had that feeling when reading Isaiah? What, what's happening uh, in this book exactly? So. Uh, for those reasons, I, I approached this book with a little bit of um, fear and trepidation, uh, but also joy as well. It's a wonderful book, as I said. It's my favorite book in in, in the entire Bible, and it's helped me immensely. Um, Barry Webb, Old Testament scholar, quote: "Isaiah is the most theologically significant book in the Old Testament." That's profound. John Oswalt, another Old Testament scholar. So, this is what you have coming ahead. Of all the books in the Old Testament, Isaiah is perhaps the richest. End quote. Herman Ritterboss, quote, from ancient times, Isaiah has been considered the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, some think he comes first uh, in the prophetic literature because he ranks first, but also because he is of supreme importance as well. In other words, for those who know what they're talking about, Old Testament scholars, all prize and treasure the book of Isaiah. What is true of Bach's music can be applied to Isaiah. Uh, It was Bach's first biographer who said, Bach's music is not merely agreeable like other composers, but transports us to the regions of the ideal. It does not arrest our attention momentarily, but grips us the stronger, the oftener we listen to it. So that after a thousand hearings, its treasures are still unexhausted and yield fresh beauties to excite our wonder. And I think that's applied to Isaiah. Isaiah, when you read this book, it it transports us to, uh, to another world, to the world of the ideal. And you get a sense of God's majesty and his holiness and his righteousness and splendor. And even after reading it for a dozen or so years, you get the sense that you're just still scratching the surface and the treasures are still unexhausted that lie beneath the surface. And fresh beauties, as, the, as it said of Bach's music, Fresh beauties are here in Isaiah to excite our wonder. I remember in 2002, or five actually, in 2005, I had been a Christian for three years, and I brought to the hospital, I was getting back surgery, and I brought to the hospital thinking I'd do a lot of reading, you know, post back surgery. Uh, John Piper's Desiring God. Um, R.C. Sproul's, willing to believe, and I brought my Bible. And um, when I was recovering from back surgery, I didn't read Piper and I didn't read Sproul. All I could read over and over again was the book of Isaiah. It, it, would just, it just gripped me. Uh, three years into my conversion, I just got a sense of a God um, that was altogether new in a way. He was so big. He was so grand. He was so great. And my heart, those those nights and those days, those weeks, as Jamie was applying new bandages to my spine, she was uh, dressing it all up. I remember reading Isaiah and being overcome with my littleness and my smallness and the greatness of this God of Isaiah. And I think it was probably the most profound time in my life spiritually. I couldn't do much, but I could read. And the God of Isaiah filled my soul. And I remember night after night uh, in bed with tears. Not tears of sorrow because the days of basketball were over. But really tears of joy and gladness. That this God in Isaiah was my God. And he's so big. And my sin is so profound, but his grace was so rich. So this book, in other words, has a, has a personal ring to it for me. And I hope um, we can walk away when we're all said and done. Uh, the same is true uh, for you. So we're going to look at three things today. It's author, it's book, the book itself, and some major themes. We'll stay Uh, most of our time this morning on the major themes, all right? Point number one, the author. Uh, Verse one, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. So Isaiah is the son of Amos, as you can see right there. Isaiah's father, Amos, was the brother of Amaziah. I say that because he was a king of Judah, which most likely places Isaiah into a royal family, OK, so he's got some prestige, some clout, you might say, and he's most likely a resident of Jerusalem. OK, so he's he's not just some ordinary man. He's uh, been placed into this royal family. Amos, his father, is the brother of King Judah. Isaiah, his name, or you could say Isaiah. Which one do you say? I have come to say Isaiah, but it's probably best to say Isaiah I wish I could say that throughout our our series, but I'm just patterned for Isaiah, so uh, uh, bear with me. Um, When you think of Hezekiah and Uzziah, I think it's probably safe to say it's probably Isaiah, but I'm going to say Isaiah probably most of the time. So there it is. Isaiah, the, the name means the Lord saves or Yahweh saves, which really directs the main theme of the book. It's all about the grace and the glory of God to reclaim sinners for himself, for their good and his glory. Isaiah means the Lord saves. If you have one single theme, that is it. His name says it all. He's married with at least two sons. Chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, you can see those names there. We'll get to those in due time. Maybe in five years. (laughs) Isaiah ministers in the southern kingdom, Judah. By this time, the kingdom has been split. Israel to the north, Judah in the south. He ministers for, hear this, nearly 60 years. So his pastorate lasts for 60 years, just about. Most of those years occurring during the days of King Ahaz and Hezekiah. Like Paul in the New Testament... Isaiah is a prophet of faith. That is what he is after. He is after the belief of God's people for God to do all things in their life and in the world. He tells Ahaz and Hezekiah to trust the Lord, especially in times of crisis. But if you are familiar with this book, that is what Ahaz refuses And what Hezekiah forgets. Hezekiah, or Ahaz is a wicked king. Hezekiah more or less is a good king, but Hezekiah forgets. In each case, they choose the road of personal endeavor, all right? A do-it-yourself salvation, seeking refuge in political and military alliances instead of trusting in the Lord's promises which are, by the way, backed by divine guarantees. All right? That is what Isaiah is after. He is after their faith. He is going to probe you, beloved. He is going to get after your heart. We live in a time of instability, of crisis, like Isaiah. And we are tempted to put our trust Our reliance on the things of this world. Bank accounts. Who's in the Oval Office. You fill in the blank. And Isaiah time and time again is going to probe you. Where is your trust? Is it in the things of this world or is it in the things of God? In his power, in his character, in his majesty and holiness. That is what Isaiah is after in this series, Your Heart of Faith. Second, the book itself. The book of Isaiah, as long as it is, as daunting as it is, is a trilogy of the Messiah. So if you like The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, kids, I think you'll like Isaiah. It's a trilogy about the Messiah. If you're taking notes, this might be helpful. Chapters 1 to 37, is the book of the king. Chapters 38 to 55 is the book of the servant. In chapters 56 to 66 is the book of the conqueror. So John is is writing a trilogy about the Messiah. Or he's painting a portrait about Jesus. And he's giving in these titles. King, servant, conqueror. And in the book of the king, we see that the world history, not just church history or redemptive history, in the book of the King, we see that world history is planned around the people of God. You must understand that, especially in the days we live. World history does not beat to the drum of the world World history is planned in and around the king and his people. God is the Lord of history, not just his people. And so throughout our sin, which we're going to see in these upcoming chapters, in chapters 1 to 5, we're going to see the triumph of his grace. We're going to see his universal kingdom, but ultimately through these chapters of, of God conquering the nations, we're going to see our God as the God of history. And everything is being planned around the gospel and the, and the flow of heaven and earth being made new again. That's what the book of the king is all about. The book of the servant, chapters 38 to 55, we see the four servant songs. The servant songs are wonderful sketches of the Lord Jesus Christ. They prefigure him who has come to save us. And each, each servant song you're supposed to sing out because of the grandeur, of the beauty, of the joy, of the worship of knowing this king now. And so we look back on these servant songs and we see that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we sing these songs So the Book of the Servant, it's all about how Christ comes to to be that servant we know who will conquer for our sin. And lastly, the Book of the Conqueror, chapters 56 to 66. We see evil vanquished. We see a new heavens and a new earth. And we see the redeemed of the Lord feasting with him forever and ever. So King, Servant, Conqueror. Each book, hear this, each book identifies the Messiah uniquely. King, servant, conqueror. But each book is incomplete without the others. All right? Alec Mottier, J.A. Mottier. If you don't have a commentary of Isaiah, get Mottier's, all right? Quote, both the king and the servant are shown to be victors. But without the conqueror, the victory is neither explained nor consummated. The king rules in righteousness over a righteous people, but, but he only does so because the servant provides righteousness for the Lord's people, and the conqueror effectuates righteousness and overthrows their enemies. Do you see how each book is, or portrait is playing off each other, how, how he needs one another? The king rules over the world, but he does so because the serpent, because the servant opens the way for all who will come to feast and enjoy the sure mercies of David. And the conqueror creates a world free of oppression. So Isaiah is a trilogy about the Messiah. It's opening Jesus to you to, for you to come and feast upon him in these various aspects, king, servant, and conqueror. And so what a feast we have before us in the next several Months, Uh, three major themes, okay? The first major theme, this is going to shock you, it's God. More specifically, it's the Holy One of Israel. God as the Holy One of Israel. The adjective holy, kadosh, is used of God more frequently than in all the rest of the Old Testament. Combined. Isaiah 33 times in Isaiah and 26 times in the rest of the Old Testament. The only thing capable of filling the earth and the only perfection of God in the entire Old Testament, which has to be cubed (laughs) in order to adequately express its worth and magnitude, is God's holiness. So turn to chapter 6. That's why we had it read this morning. Just a brief look at this section here. In chapter 6, when God calls Isaiah, it's holiness that spreads in three dimensions or three directions. Okay? First, holiness and transcendence. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. And where is he, beloved? He's high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Holiness first is transcendent. It speaks about God's majesty, his otherness, his separateness than us and creation. There's a, there's a distinction to be made. He's high and lifted up and Isaiah and everyone else is down here. The second dimension holiness spreads is in judgment. Verses four and five. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who was called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. For I am lost, Isaiah says. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. It's a deadly thing, beloved. It's a deadly thing to be in the presence of the Holy One. You don't trifle with God, and Isaiah understands that. Notice there's not even a sentence given from the throne. God pronounces no judgment upon Isaiah from his own words, but Isaiah's own conscience pricks him here, and he sees his undoneness, his lostness before God's holiness. Holiness and transcendence, holiness and judgment. And third, and believe it or not. Holiness and salvation. I think sometimes we think of holiness and we think of God's, uh, we simply think it of God's perfection that keeps Him from us. He's so holy that we can approach Him, and that's definitely true. We just said that. But do you know, beloved, that holiness is also good? It's attracted to that which it can redeem. Verse six, holiness and salvation. Then the one then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. You see that the smoke of holiness that we saw in verses five and four and five. Believe it or not, the smoke of holiness leaves the means of salvation. The coal, the burning coal that the seraphim uses to touch Isaiah's lips comes from God's holiness And so we see that holiness spreads certainly in judgment, but also in salvation. His desire is to redeem those and reclaim those who are his. Alec Montier again, quote, the whole Isianic literature is an exposition of the holiness of God. The awesome threat which holiness strikes into an unworthy, careless, and unresponsive people, 1 to 37. The lengths to which the Holy One will go to deal with sin and reclaim the sinner for himself, 40 to 55. And the eternal state of holiness which he will prepare for them wherein they will enjoy him forever, 56 to 66. It's all about the holiness of God and his transcendence second main theme is a tale of two cities, a tale of two cities in chapters 13 to 27. Maybe you can just go there. In chapters 13 to 27, there's judgments upon nation after nation after nation, and intermittent within these judgment, these oracles of judgment, are oracles of salvation for God's people. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful scene. This 15 chapters or so. And what the theme of these chapters is, is a tale of two cities. Isaiah sees the world comprising of two cities. The city of God and the city of man. That's right. The city of man begins in Genesis 11. Tower of Babel represents society structured without God. It is a humanly made, humanly centered city created by human cleverness seeking a human salvation. And that's what these chapters um, are pervasive with, the city of man. That's what Isaiah lived in, and beloved, it is what you and I live in. That city, the city of man, is juxtaposed throughout Isaiah's exposition to the city of God. The city of God is a new world. It's built by God on his plan with himself at the center where he reigns over a universe of righteousness and peace from where the cross is the power of salvation unto God and unto us and from where the city of man is overthrown. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians one quotes Isaiah 29 and he says, I will des- destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. It's, this, it's this, this story about the tale of two cities. The city of God overcoming the city of man. Reclaiming a people for himself and judging evil. And all throughout this book, beloved, Isaiah is going to probe you once again. What city do you belong to? What city are you in? When will you cast off the do-it-yourself salvation? The do-it-yourself personal endeavor, way to find favor with God. That is what Isaiah is after time and time again. What city are you living in? And yet Isaiah throughout his book, beloved, he not only probes your heart by, by means of justification, getting your faith Um, in Christ to be justified by him. But also he says uh, the life of faith doesn't end at justification. The life of faith is just beginning actually at justification. Remember Hezekiah. He's a righteous king, but he forgets that the Christian life is all about belief and faith in Christ. And that is what Isaiah is going to probe time and time again. Do you walk by faith? Oh, you may be justified by faith, but do you walk by faith? And lastly, the last theme is attention of waiting. It's not actually the last theme in the book. It's just the last one of today. Isaiah 56 verse 1. Turn there if you would. Isaiah 56 verse 1. At this point, the people are back from exile. All right. They've been redeemed from the ser- or by the servant, literarily, that is. And he says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and, and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be. Revealed, so the people are back from exile, from Babylon. At this point, they've been redeemed by the servant, uh, chapters 53 and so on, and yet God's people still find themselves subject to harassment, and oppression, and difficulties of various kinds, from within and from without. In other words, beloved, some of their needs aren't met still. And so they're told here to keep justice and do righteousness until salvation comes, until their salvation is consummated. They're told to wait. Sound familiar? That's the life we live. That's the tension we are in now as the kingdom of us has already come and not yet consummated. We still live in this tension of being justified, yes, but, but needing to wait upon the Lord. And not every need, not every desire, Isaiah is going to say time and time again, not every need and not every want will be met in this life. That's the tension Isaiah wants us to wrestle with. Do you feel that at times? I'm a Christian. My life should go well. And Isaiah says, no. That's not the Christian life. Not every desire will be met. Not every need will be met. You will wait upon the Lord. That is what Isaiah is about in large measure. One more quote from Matir. Experience teaches them and us that because of the inadequacies within ourselves, we cannot live up to what God requires. There is set before us, however, an anointed one whose work of salvation meets our needs spiritually, whose work of righteousness fulfills all that God requires and whose work of vengeance deals with every opposing force. (laughs) Praise God for God. Hence, we pray, Isaiah says, that's what we do, beloved. Our needs aren't met, so we pray and wait. We pray and wait and hold on, Matir says, to the promises Confidently expecting the eternal glory of the new creation. That's our life. That's the Christian life. Waiting, praying, waiting and praying for God to come. In a word, Amatir says, Isaiah centralizes faith. A faith that persists. A faith that prays. And a faith that waits in hope. That's what this book wants you to do. To understand the Christian life. that as you wait for Christ to come and dwell this people forever and ever. And oh, for that day, right, beloved? Oh, for that day. Keep justice and do righteousness. And you're thinking the world doesn't do that. It doesn't. And God will deal with them. Let's clean up our house first. So Isaiah ministered in a day a lot like ours. Days of crisis and instability. And as I read Isaiah, I think, what kept this man going? 60 years? Man, I would have been gone. Don't even listen to the guy most of the time. Not hardly anyone. And for thanks for his ministry, they, they cut him in two. They sawed him in two. So how did Isaiah carry on before that day? Well, there's really only one answer. What Isaiah saw, the vision, one, one, what Isaiah saw is real. And we need to see it too. We need to see God wrapped in his holiness, clothed in splendor, triumphant in grace, and a God who is seeking all things, all the nations, as an aim, as a means to his glory. What Isaiah saw was real and you need to see it too. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray for this time in this wonderful book. We believe all things and hope all things and expect all things. And so in faith, we. We pray that we would not be the same individual at the beginning of Isaiah as. We will be Lord willing at the end. I pray for the glory of God to. Absolutely shock us and strike us out of ourselves and to give us such fresh beauties of your wonder that you might create in our faithless hearts faith that trusts and relies and waits upon our God, the rock and redeemer. For Christ's sake,